All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see everyone today. Um, it's good to see guests. I see a few new faces. We love guests. So we're in this series, Questioning God, and today we're answering the question, why is the church responsible for so much injustice? This sermon series with all these really big topics that we're doing, this is such an important thing. We, I want to encourage us to be thinking about people we know that we can extend the invitation to, that we can, you know, I think people must know about some of these things, and uh, it's important, you know, just like people watching skateboarding dogs and what happens when you drop Mentos into Diet Coke. Really important, just like those things. So be definitely sharing this series with, with people. Here's my contention. Here's what I've been saying. Let me do my little intro here to our sermon series, is that everybody wants to believe in something spiritual. Everybody wants to believe in something transcendent. And uh, this is proven by the fact that even people who have denounced God will some, suddenly find themselves praying when they're in trouble. And uh, some Bears fans might be really, really praying as well. All kind of prayers. Scientists are trying to harmonize everything in the universe with mathematics that makes everything make sense, that there's kind of a big meta-narrative even for scientists in the universe. And personally, I'm still just trying to figure out how X is a number. But there are people doing really fancy things because we're, we're drawn to the highest good and the greatest ideal. We're striving for that. We're, as I've been saying, we are indelibly religiously oriented. The idea that there's a God in heaven who loves you, who made you, who delights in you, who wants to set you free from evil, who's got a plan for you, who wants to add you to his family. That idea will never get old. That will always resonate with the depth of our being because it's Christians, we believe it's true. It's not just a nice idea. It's not just something that makes us feel good. It's something we believe is true. But even having said those things, there's barriers. There's barriers to entering the Christian faith, and that's what we're going through in this series. We're trying to lower the barriers. And some of the content from today and from this series is from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And uh, today I'm going to be preaching from the Bible from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 7. So in the book of Isaiah, this is the first, in the first big chunk of the Bible in what's called the Old Testament. And uh, that's the story. The Old Testament is the story of how everything started, how God made everything. And he worked through a particular people group, the nation of Israel, and set them free from slavery and established them, wanted to establish a perfect, righteous human community on earth, heaven on earth. That was God's big plan in the Old Testament. And what we learn as you read the Bible, you learn that these people who had received the moral law from God, they seen the power of God at work, they seen all these incredible miracles, all these things happening, and they, they received God's law, the Ten Commandments. They themselves, even though they were supposed to be a light to other nations, they failed time and time again. Instead of doing the good works of God, they became perpetrators of oppression and injustice themselves, of doing evil themselves, even though they had seen the power of God and knew the goodness of God. And this brings us to the big topic today, that doesn't it seem that people who claim to know God and claim to believe in God and claim to have the way seem to be giant hypocrites? And so in, in the Old Testament, we see God sent them prophets, prophets like Isaiah, to correct them to bring them back to the truth, to bring them back to true religion. But it makes us ask this question, isn't it, doesn't it seem pretty common that people who claim to know God seem to be doing all the things that they say other people shouldn't be doing? How should we respond to this? How do we answer this? Let's pray, and we're going to turn to the Bible for help. Jesus, be with us today. Help us to really wrap our minds around this subject, and give us confidence in your word and in your truth. And help us to be proud to be believers, but also help us, all those here who 
don't yet believe, and those online who aren't sure about their beliefs, I pray lower the barriers and put that spark of faith in them that they might trust you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 58 says, cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. This is God's word. Now in the first couple of verses here, verses uh, 2 and 3, we, we've actually got some irony and some sarcasm. So if you're not tuned into that, it might be a little odd to read. It might be thinking it's saying contradictory things. Because it's saying they delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. This is sarcasm and irony because what's revealed in this passage at this time is that God's people were not seeking the righteousness of God. They're supposedly following God. They're pretending to follow God, but they're not really following God. They're not really doing the good works of God. They're doing all these religious things, surface-level things. They're fasting and praying and spreading sackcloth and ashes and doing all this, all this penance, all this religious outward behavior. But what we learn is we learn that they're taking advantage and they're oppressing people in need. Those who are disadvantaged, they're harming them, mistreating them, taking advantage of them. You read this in verses, uh, the second part of verse 3, let me read that again. It says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. And then verse 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. So this is complete hypocrisy here that these people are doing all this religious ceremonial practice on the outside, but they're completely mistreating people, which, is, which shows that they don't really believe what they're doing. Maybe you can think of somebody like this, kind of religious, somebody religious, or maybe uh, you can just imagine it, or you, maybe you know somebody, a religious kind of person who is very hypocritical. They say one thing, but they do another thing. They don't really believe in what they say. And his, historically, history is filled with examples of this. We're not short of that. Even today, we're not short of this, are we? Like every culture, every, 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 every community, every, lots of families, 
even, even some of us are sometimes that person. Sometimes we're that person. It's not always somebody else. Sometimes we're, we find ourselves in that place where we're, we're, we're the one doing the wrong thing. And unfortunately, because of this level of hypocrisy, a lot of, a lot of people look at that behavior in Christians or in churches, and they reject the Christian faith because of it, tragically. It's so hard for us. We're so influenced. We're social creatures. We're so influenced by the behavior of other people, aren't we? It's not very rational, but we trust. I mean, we're so dumb. If we think about it, we're, we're human beings. We're really, really dumb about this. We trust complete strangers. If you meet somebody and you share the same birthday as them, I mean, studies will show it. You're really likely to have high levels of trust for that person based on nothing but sharing the same birthday. You support the same sports team, right? Or you, you both know somebody named Brad. Or, or a more uncommon name like Jessica. You, you both have some things you connect over. It's, it's highly illogical, highly irrational. Celebrities that we know that endorse certain products and certain services, we buy those products and services. Is this rational? I mean, people didn't even know what grills were until George Foreman. Fashion, new fashion. Why do we buy? Why do we, why do we have to buy the latest fashion? Well, it's because well, that's what everyone's wearing. That's what everyone's doing. I want to fit in with what everyone's doing. I want to be just like everybody else. Is this a rational, smart, intelligent way to live? Remember when planking was cool? <laughs> Parents learning TikTok dances. It's it's not rational. All good. If you, let's say, someone, someone who's not a follower of Jesus, let's say, not a follower of Jesus, but you know some Christians, all right? And these Christians you know, they're really kind. Uh, they, they may be very devout. They may really, really, really believe uh, what, they, what they say, but, but they're just great people. They're super generous. They take care of the needy. Um, they'll be there for you. They'll help you out. They don't hold a grudge against anyone. They're just super people. You just, you just think, man, they're just good, good, great people. If that's your experience, you are far more likely to be open to the Christian faith. Far more likely to say, you know, there's something good there. I like that. But imagine the opposite. Imagine you know somebody who claims to be a Christian, but they're arrogant. They're impatient. They're obnoxious. They don't help people. They're antagonistic. There's, there's, something, there's things off in their attitude. In that situation, you're far more likely to be closed to Christianity because of that witness. Now, that's a very, for those of us who believe, which is, I'm sure is the majority of us, it's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Just based on somebody's perception on us, of us, can cause us to, to, that person to be really open to the Christian faith or really close to it. Recently, my wife and I, we uh, refinanced our house. We were trying to get, you know, historically low uh, interest rates. And also, we're trying to do this cash out op option. We're trying to finish our basement to make it accessible. We have some special needs in our family, and so we're trying to do that. And so I spent this very lengthy process. It's basically a, a second full-time job to try and refinance your house. And I talked to lots of different agents, lots of different mortgage providers and lenders, and you're comparing and contrasting and put, pitting people against each other. And you spend a lot of time talking to a lot of different people, and they're always calling you, and they're always making it out like they're doing a favor for you. And the, they've, gone, they've, they've gone to bat for you, and they've been working on weekends and evenings for you. And you can't trust that other person you've been talking to because they're lying about the thing they told you about. So you can only trust them. And so you feel 
you, and, and then certain ones you really like and other ones you don't like as much. Other, you, know, you, you look forward to this person's call, you know, but this other person that calls you like, I ah, really don't want to talk to them. And, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to objectively find what's the best deal. What's the best deal? And it's very hard. If you find someone you really like, but they don't have the best deal, it's really hard. And this happened to me. I had to say to that person, look, I got to make the best financial decision for my family. And these numbers are just better over here. Now, what am I doing in that situation? I'm trying to separate my, and this is so hard for human beings to do, to do this. It's so, so difficult for us to do this. We feel bad about doing this. And in one sense, it's good that we feel bad about doing it. But if you've got to make an objective decision about something, I was trying to separate my emotional, excuse me, my emotional feelings about the person from the, the objective details and reality of the deal that they were offering me. What are the closing costs? What's the rate they're going to give me? What's going to work out better financially for our family, as opposed to how I feel about an individual? Now, sometimes you get lucky in life. You get lucky in life that the best deal that gets offered to you is also the person who's most likable and you have the most affinity to. I'm always reminding my wife about that. She's very lucky. Um, we've got to understand there's a massive difference between people who claim to follow a religion and the teachings of that religion. So the, the big difference between the behavior of some people and the influence of those people have on us compared to the, the objective, more rational, not connected to the emotional behavior of people, there's, there's some, those are two separate things. People take something good and twist it to mean something bad or to do something bad all the time. People do that all the time. There's three issues that we need to drill down into to look into today to answer this question properly, to answer the question, why is the church responsible for so much injustice? We've got to look at the behavior of individuals. We've got to look at religious injustice writ large. And we have to look at extremism and fanaticism. Let's start with the first one. We'll look at the behavior of individuals, or we could say bad Christians, bad Christians. What, how do we square this away? Verse 1, let's reread verse 1. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So the Bible has this tension in it, where on the one hand it tells us, and we talk about this all the time, but it's really foundational, we can't, you can never get away from it, that on the one hand, yes, you're made in God's image, you have divine attributes, you reflect the goodness of God, you can do good, and um, all of that. But also it tells us this, that we are fundamentally flawed, that we are each of us capable of the worst evil that can be done. The Bible calls it sin. It's unapologetic about it. Now, there are others, out, there are people out, you know, outside of the Christian faith, of other faiths or of no faith, who live very moral lives. And this is a big misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Some people don't understand, or they, they're surprised to hear Christians admit this, that there are people who aren't Christians or of, of no faith that actually live very good, very upright, very moral lives. Because all the good things we do and all the good things that happen to us are under what Christians call God's common grace, that God is good and to everyone and provides for everyone and blesses everyone, even people that do great evil and great wrong. God, in His kindness and His grace, will still provide food for them, will still bless them, will still help them in different ways because God is merciful, giving people a chance to repent, chance to turn. It's an amazing thing. And so people are, will scratch their heads and be confused about the Christian faith and think, think, oh, it seemed to me that the Christian faith was all about 
you get your life in order, you, you, you try and do a lot of good stuff, and then that kind of means you're kind of acceptable as a Christian. Isn't that the way it works, that, that way around? But if you've been around Trinity any length of time, or if you've read the Bible, really, you'll understand that that's the opposite of how it works, that, that the righteousness we receive from God and the forgiveness of our sins being set free from evil, it's a gift. It's a free gift based on the righteous work of Jesus on the cross, bleeding out for us, dying for us to set us free. That's the good news of the gospel of grace. Now, if anyone has the expectation that Christians should be perfect and should not do any wrong, they've kind of missed the point. And actually, Christianity doesn't even really have that expectation. Not at, I mean, we read verse 1. God himself is sending a message through the prophet Isaiah to call out the transgressions and the sins of the people. It's very unapologetic, very transparent, which is one of the most surprising things about Scripture is that it's constantly revealing how awful people are and how good God is. That's the, one of the big things you learn from reading the Bible. Every page of the Bible, that story is on it. Now, think about, think about this. Good character is, is probably mostly shaped, and mostly this can be influenced by lots of things, but good character in somebody is probably mostly shaped by somebody's um, kind of upbringing or their, their family of origin, by if they were in a stable environment or not. It's probably the biggest impact. There are other things that can impact it, but that's probably the biggest one. So let's say, for example, this afternoon, you meet two people independently of each other. The first person you meet, you learn they've had a really rough background. Some really terrible things have happened to them. And, and, but also, they've, maybe they've made some really bad choices in addition to that as well. And then you learn that they recently became a Christian. So that's interesting. And then you meet somebody else independently. And the second person, you learn that they came from a very, a very good background stable background, lots of support, lots of help, lots of resource. They really had everything they could, you could have wished for in life, but they're not religious. They're kind of agnostic, don't really believe in anything. If you didn't understand the Christian faith, you could look at those two people and draw the wrong conclusions about what's going on. Are we saying that every time a Christian does something wrong, that it discredits all of Christianity? If we're saying that, then we also would have to say every time an atheist does something wrong, it discredits their entire worldview. Or every time a university professor does something wrong, they take advantage of a student, does that discredit what they've taught or their entire field of study? The answer to those things is no, which means the answer to the Christian faith must also be no. That's the individual that's the first one we want to look at here, looking at the, the, the behavior of individuals. Let's look at the second one, religious injustice writ large. What about high-level, institutionalized, mass evil done in the name of a religion at the institutional level? What about that? Now, this is a fair point. This really is a fair point, that religious groups People can moralize the differences and the cultural differences between different groups and kind of feel like they're trapped in this cosmic battle of good and evil and tensions can flare up and there can be all kind of combative issues and that can lead, that can lead to great injustice and it has led to great injustice in the past, even so for Christianity in particular, historically. There's, there's, Christianity has institutionalized imperialism 
and violence and oppression. The two greatest examples of that would be the Inquisition and the African slave trade. Those are at the institutional levels. And it's a very sobering thing. As a follow, you know, If you claim the name of Jesus and you, you're proud to be a Christian, you know, it's a very sobering thing to think about those black spots in Christian history. But if we're going to be students of history, we also have to understand it's not just a Christian problem. Yes, it is a Christian problem, but it's not just a Christian problem. So we have to understand that to- totalitarian, uh, totalitarian um, Japanese empire of the, the mid-20th century, that, that that totalitarian empire actually grew out of a culture that was heavily steeped in Buddhism and Shintoism. We see problems with the, the militant component of Islam is the soil for most of our terrorism today. We have to be honest about that. Hindu nationalists launch attacks on churches and mosques. So the conclusion that some people will come to is, they'll say, well, the problem's just with religion in general. It's the idea that God's on your side. You have the truth. Everyone else is wrong. It leads you to justify, well, if God's on my side and they're all wrong, then I can do all kinds of atrocities in the name of God to other people. And there's something about that when you first hear it, if you are a Christian or any kind of faith, you can kind of feel bad and think, oh my gosh, that something sounds right about that. But it doesn't take too long to push into it, to dig into it, to realize it's actually not a very reasonable accusation or reasonable statement. Let me explain why. Communist Russia and Chinese and uh, Cambodian regimes of the 20th century, they rejected belief in God, and they rejected, they rejected traditional belief in God and replaced it with other things. Even the French Revolution was an attempt to erase traditional belief in God and say that human reason alone was all that counted. Even Marxism attempts to replace God with the state. The state is the, the most powerful thing that has all the power. What did the Nazis do? They moralized race. That was God. In all those examples, all of those governments, all of those regimes, they're all secular. But they are responsible for more suffering and more death than any religion. If you take God out of a culture, it doesn't improve that culture. What happens is People still find ways to moralize things and use that as leverage and power and control and to mistreat other people. The problem isn't religious belief or irreligious belief. The problem is with the human heart. The problem is with the human heart. We'll read it again. Verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob, their sins. The human heart can take any ideology, and some ideologies are worse than others. Some may bear some blame because they directly have evil things in them. But even if you got rid of all those and just had the best options available to you, to you, even the human heart can twist the best ideologies that you could come up with and use them to oppress and manipulate and mistreat other people. The issue is with the human heart. Any act of injustice done in the name of Jesus or done under the umbrella of Christianity must be addressed, must be stopped, must be corrected. What we can't do is we can't say, 
cultures are going to are better if you take God out of them. In fact, they appear to be worse when you take God out of them. If we're going to say Christianity can't be true because Christians have done bad things, then it's like saying, well, a doctor did something immoral, therefore everything doctors say must be wrong. It doesn't make sense. If the answer to that is no, then the answer to the accusations against the Christian faith must be no. So we've talked about the individual responsibility, individual behavior. We talked about religious injustice writ large. Now let's talk about extremism and fanaticism. There are some zealous types, aren't there? Zealous people, new converts to religions, and Christianity has this too. You have new zealous converts who get very, very excited about their beliefs, very antagonistic even sometimes, and um, they'll, they'll start denouncing things, start saying all kinds of things, and they'll, maybe, maybe they'll do something, and this happens in the Christian faith, maybe they'll say something like, all music is satanic even without playing it backwards. It's, it's still satanic. I think Spotify might be putting a, a label on all of their stuff moving forward saying, you know, just be careful. If you, we haven't played it all backwards. So it might be satanic. So you might be accidentally listening to satanic things. Okay, that's a lie. I'm not, that's a joke. Spotify is not actually doing that. But maybe they should. Maybe they should just to, just to cover their bases. These new converts, these zealous types, they might start espousing obscure political ideas and convictions, or um, you know, they might they might start talking about about all kind of different things. They might start talking about the Israel all the time. Everything's about Israel all the time. Everything always about Israel all the time, or the end times and the beast and all these different things that some zealous types really uh, latch onto. And the response to this, the criticism against the Christian faith oftentimes is to say, you know, people, they just, they shouldn't take their faith so seriously. They should moderate it. They should tone it down and they shouldn't be so fanatical and extreme about their Christian faith. That's, that's, that's where it leads to. It leads to just, you know, people acting out like this and that's just uh, not very helpful. Well, someone who is a follower of Jesus we hear that and we say, well, we kind of understand the heart behind that, but we say, that's, that's, you wouldn't advise anyone to tone down their faith. That, that doesn't sound right, does it? In fact, if you, if you actually understand the true teachings of Jesus, we would say, you need to get more and more and more fanatical and extreme about the true teachings of Jesus. Because these strange, zealous types, they're actually failing at what Jesus wants them to do. They're failing at it. Here's what happens when a believer takes their faith seriously. Here's what happens. You, you, you realize that the Christian faith has this inbuilt mechanism within it, this, this ability to bring correction, self-correction internally. There's this, there's this mechanism within it that has a, a lifetime guarantee to it, so it doesn't stop working. And it brings you back. It brings you to this place of repentance. It brings you back to this place of correction, of humility. It's built into the very basis of the system, how the religion is supposed to work. And so we see God sending Old Testament prophets to bring the nation back to repentance, to say, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to cry out for God's help. You're, you're the one perpetrating evil. It's you this time. And that's the, when you take on a Christian identity, that's what one of the big things you're taking on is you realize, I might be in that place at any point where I have to repent, where I'm the one in the wrong, where I have to confess my sin and 
make a change and be corrected. It has that inbuilt correction to, to it. And this is when you read the Bible, when you take your faith seriously and you read the Bible and you come across the Old Testament prophets, you realize they're constantly calling out not just generic oppression, they are directly calling out religious oppression. People who in the name of God are using the power, like religious power to dominate and to harm other people. And the prophets were constantly against it, constantly correcting it, constantly bringing the people back to true religion, to truly following God and truly trusting God. This is what Jesus did as well on the Sermon on the Mount, the famous teachings of Jesus. Uh, he's not talking to the, to, to the, the average everyday person. He, he's criticizing the religious establishment of the day. That's who Jesus is talking about. In contrast to, because the religious establishment, they're again abusing their power, lording their power over the people, mistreating and oppressing other people. And in contrast to what the religious elite was, were doing, Jesus is bringing in and associating with prostitutes and with tax collectors and the outcasts and the misfits. And, you know, they really were the original Adam's family. This is the work of Jesus. Rather than saying, oh, you know, don't, don't take the Bible so seriously. Don't, you don't need to read the Bible or you don't need to pray and fast and you don't really need to worry about all that religious stuff. Just be moderate. Instead of that, Jesus is saying, no, you have to go deeper and deeper. And those things are good things. But you know, they don't count if you haven't got the foundation, the actual foundation of that heart of grace, that heart of love, the love of God that's permeated the deepest part of you that makes, makes you able to love anybody, even your worst enemy. That's the, the true heart of the Christian faith. Go deeper, go deeper into those things. And so this is the response. We'll read it again, verses 5 through 7. We'll read this again. Verse 5, it says, Is such the fast I, that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? A day. Just one day. That's all you need is a day, right? No. Is it to bow down his head like a reed? to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Jesus is saying, be fanatical about feeding those who are hungry. Get crazy about it. Get that deep love for those in need. Jesus is saying, for those who are homeless, bring them into your house. Have them over. House them. Help them. Serve them. Get, get serious about that. That's the heart of the Christian faith. If any, nobody, nobody should reject the Christian faith because of the poor behavior and the bad behavior of some people. Instead, we need to go deeper, deeper into the Christian faith because at the core of the Christian faith is this idea of humility, this idea that I didn't deserve the goodness and the forgiveness of God. It wasn't anything I did. It was what he did. And so therefore, I'm not really worthy of this, but I've received this. And so out of that motivation of what's happened to me, I, I need to spread this goodness and this grace in the world because of what God has done on my behalf for me before I even cared about God or thought about God. He took care of my sin on the cross. This is the amazing truth of the Christian faith. Now listen, if, any, if the bad behavior of some Christians has caused anyone to, to reject the Christian faith, then let me propose 
that perhaps, maybe, if you're open-minded, if you're open-minded, that the good behavior of some Christians will cause you to move towards Jesus and the Christian faith. Let's talk about, let's talk, take a minute, talk, let's talk about slavery. Let's talk about slavery. Unfortunately, slavery was, is a universal standard throughout history in all countries and all cultures have used some form of slavery. Tragically, some people you know, used the Bible to justify the African slave trade. But it was Christians in studying the Bible who came to the conclusion that slavery was wrong. And it was Christians that abolished slavery in the first place. When they, these Christians, when they looked at the indentured servitude and the, the bond service of what's described in the Old Testament, and they compared it to the race-based lifelong chattel slavery that kidnapped people against their will and mistreated them, they realized they're not the same thing and we're against, we're against that expression of slavery. It's completely different to what's called indentured servitude. In the Bible, in the Bible there's this idea of bond service, that you can have an agreement between two parties, a voluntary agreement between two parties, that one party has the rights, the, the exclusive rights to somebody else's labor. And that's actually, that agreement is no different to what almost all executives legally bind themselves to, themselves to and sign legal documents today. You have the exclusive rights to somebody's labor. You don't have the right to their life or to mistreat them. But you agree that they're going to work for you. And there's, there's time bound, there's compensation given. It's an entirely different thing. There's more we could get into in that and how the Bible describes it, but it's a completely different thing. These Christian activists, people like William Wilberforce, we've got a picture here of Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, others like John Woolman as well. They spent their entire lives, they studied this. They understood what the Bible was teaching. They understood that the verses that people were using to justify the chattel slavery was completely wrong. It's not what God had intended at all, and they fought their entire lives to end the slave trade. And because of these Christian activists, we don't have slavery like that today. There's obviously, there will, unfortunately, there'll probably always be some form of slavery, but we don't have the, the slave trade as it was because of these Christians, because of these believers. Think also of Dietrich uh, Bornhofer, German pastor. He uh, was uh, a theologian and pastor during the rise of Hitler, he started an illegal seminary to train people, Christians, who resisted signing an oath of allegiance to the Nazi party. He's very active, very vocal against what the Nazis were doing. True Christian hero. He was eventually arrested by the Nazis and murdered for his faith, for resisting. Before his death, he wrote that it was his Christian faith, it was his belief in Jesus and his hope in Jesus that caused him to resist their evil, to say no to what they were doing because the German church at the time had become completely corrupt. They were corroborating, collaborating with this evil regime. Rather than resisting it, they were turning a blind eye to the systematic oppression and eventual extermination of an entire group of people, millions and others as well. Millions of people. 
the, the church at the time had become completely corrupt. So in, in the legacy of the Old Testament prophets who called out religious oppression, and in the legacy of Jesus, who did the same thing of the religious elite of his day, Bonhoeffer was doing the exact same thing, saying the church has become corrupt, and it's wrong, and they turned a blind eye to it. And he paid the price. He paid the price. But we can, we can be sure of this, that he believed in verse 6, where it says, let the oppressed go free. We, can, we know Bonhoeffer believed that that, that is the true heart of the gospel. Let the oppressed go free. Any act of injustice in the name of Jesus is not being true to the person of Jesus. True religion is to be fanatical about freeing people from oppression, being fanatical about doing the right thing, about doing the good works of God in the name of Jesus. And this is what Jesus has done for us. The greatest work of freedom. Of course, there's, there can be physical liberation, and that can happen, of course. But the greatest freedom we needed is in the human heart, because the problem is in the depths of the human heart, and that's what Jesus came to solve. A righteous God, a holy God, an eternal God sent his son to pay the ultimate price, to exchange his life for our life, that we might be set free from the oppression of our own sin, the sin that we have put, the sin that we have perpetrated against ourselves and against others, and that we've had perpetrated against us, that we can be set free from all of it only in and through the person and work of Jesus. This is the good news. This is why we're here. This is why you are breathing, is to tell the world this message. We need to respond to Jesus. How will you respond today to Jesus? Do you need prayer today? Do you need to give your life to Christ today? Do you want to get more involved at Trinity? Join one of our small groups or serve or give. Whatever step you need to take today, you can do what Cole so eloquently messed up earlier on. Slide joke. No, you can, you can fill in one of those Connect cards, those digital Connect cards. We want to hear from you. We want to help you. We want to stay connected to you. You can text the word ENJOY to 94000 and tell us that way. But let's, let's worship. Let's respond and magnify Jesus and praise Jesus because only in him can we find our freedom. And can we find the grace to know that even, in the even though th those in the name of Jesus have done great evil and great wrong, that does not represent the heart of the gospel and the heart of Christianity, which is represented in the person of Jesus and through the work of Jesus only.